0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series Crux, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. It's going to be missed. All For the past several weeks, we've been studying through Paul's letter to the Colossians in our study titled Crux. The reason we call this series Crux is because the crux of an issue is the bottom line, the decisive point of a matter. And the word Crux, by the way, is interesting. The word Crux is also the Latin word for cross. And that's really the core message of the book of Colossians. That's why I've given it this title. The core message is this, that the cross of Jesus Christ is the crux of all of history. It is the crux of our lives individually, and it is the crux of our destinies eternally. So let's begin uh, today by reading our text together. Please read along with me from Colossians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 12 through 25. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. And masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we do ask that as we delve into it and delve into what these things mean and what they mean for our lives, Lord, that you would give us insight, you would give us wisdom, and Lord, not just help us to understand your word and read it, but to also put it into practice in our lives. Lord, we ask that you do that and that it would bear a harvest of good fruit for your glory, for our good, for the good of those around us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Bible tells us that an essential aspect of what it means to be a Christian is it means to be an imitator of Christ. But the question is, what does it mean to be an imitator of Christ? Some people have taken that imitation of Jesus in a very literal way and, frankly, a very painful way. Uh, Just as Jesus carried his cross up the hill to the place where he was crucified, maybe you've heard about, you know, there are several people throughout this country and around the world who carry a literal cross, and they'll carry it across their country or across their state, uh, imitating Jesus, right? I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Taking up our cross and imitating Jesus, reenacting the gospel, uh, in the Philippines, I've got some pictures here for you, maybe you've heard of this, there's an annual event held on Good Friday in which dozens of people every year are literally crucified like literal nails through their hands and hung on a cross. And why? Because they want to imitate Christ, because of course that's what it means to be a Christian is to imitate Christ and to live out the gospel, and they want to imitate him in his sufferings. And every year this is growing. More and more people are doing this in this particular place in the Philippines, Uh, This year, over 30 people wanted to reenact the key event of the gospel, the crucifixion. And so they signed up, I mean voluntarily, to be whipped and then nailed to a wooden cross with actual nails through their flesh, through their feet and their hands. And then they were hung and crucified, uh, but not long enough to die from it. Hundreds of people also attend this event who aren't crucified, but they whip themselves On the backs until they bleed. The question is this Is this what Jesus is talking about? Is this what the Bible is talking about when it talks about taking up our cross and following Jesus? Is this what it means to imitate Christ? Is this what is required of us? And I'm pretty sure that we can all agree that clearly the answer is no. But what is it then? Here in our text, we have a much better explanation of what it means to imitate Christ and to live out the gospel in our lives and to take up our cross. And the title of today's message is Gospel Reenactment. And and in this section, here's what we're going to see. Three things. Uh, In the first section, we're going to talk about just be yourself as long as that self is the new self. So just be your new self, I guess you could say. Secondly, we're going to talk about gospel reenactment in your home. And thirdly, gospel reenactment in your workplace. This covers just about all of us. First of all, let's talk about just being your new self with the caveat of new. This is verses 12 through 17, which we just read. And one of the great mantras of our modern society is, just be yourself. But what Paul would say, Paul the Apostle writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he would say, well, sure, but I guess that depends on which self you're talking about because the Christian has two selves to deal with, the old self and the new self. See, the great theme of Paul's letter to the Colossians is the uniqueness of the Christian gospel. The Colossians lived in a society which was surprisingly similar to our own as regards the attitude toward religion in that there was a a Pressure in society to not be exclusive about any of your beliefs about God or any of your claims about what you believed and rather to mix all different religions together, right? To take the best practices from here and there, kind of, uh, you know, put them all together and leave out the parts that you don't like. That was what they did in their society, very similar, honestly, to what uh, is the pressure in our society. And some of the Christians in Colossae, they weren't sure what they should do about this, which they, they should think about it, if they should agree with that, if they should do it or if they shouldn't, and why or why not. And so Paul wrote this letter to address this issue and to clarify to the Colossians why you can't do that with Christianity. And in this letter, here's what he's focused on so far. He's focused on the uniqueness of who Jesus is. Secondly, he focused on the uniqueness of the message of God's grace. And now, specifically, he's talking about the unique power of the gospel in a person's life who believes. That's what Paul's talking about here as we pick up in the middle of chapter 3. What he has been telling us is that the unique power in the life of a person who believes the gospel, who embraces the gospel, is that when you submit your life to Jesus Christ, the spirit of Christ actually comes into your life in a dynamic way and transforms you from the inside out. And through this process, you will no longer be the person you were before. God is at work inside of you, forming you, making you into a new person, a better person, a person who shares his heart and his desires and his mission that the change is described in this way in the Bible, that the old you has been nailed to the cross with Jesus and has died. And there's a new you now, a new you that has been raised up to new life with Christ through his resurrection. In other words, you have been born again. And there is a way in which this work is, on the one hand, it's already done, right? In the sense that it's on the books, it's done, it's a done deal in God's uh, opinion. But in another way, the work is still ongoing for us who are living, you know, day to day. Now experiencing one event to the next, it's uh, already done, but it's still ongoing. In that we have to play an active role in walking in and living out this new reality. And the way Paul describes it in this section, he uses a kind of word picture which describes taking off one set of clothes and putting on another set of clothes. Like the time that I rotor rooted my own sewer drain. And uh, I was successful, but yet the clothes I was wearing, let's just say, they were not even worthy to go into the washing machine. Like if I would have put those clothes in the washing machine, I would have had to set my washing machine on fire and get a new one. That's how disgusting these clothes were, right? So these clothes were taken off, never to be put on again, never to be seen again. I double-bagged them, threw them away, and I really, really hope that no one dug through my trash because I put on a clean pair of clothes and I never looked back. And that's the metaphor that Paul's using here when he says put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self which is being renewed after the image of its creator. Now last week we looked primarily at the old self and its practices and this week we turn our focus To the new self. And what the new self looks like, Paul tells us, is it is made in the image of its creator. In other words, the Spirit of God working within the believer is working in them to make them like Jesus. See, that's the end goal. Jesus Christ was the greatest, wisest, most compassionate, most loving, most spiritual, and most joyful person who ever lived. Even people who don't love Jesus would attribute those things to him. And to become like Jesus in that sense, it is the best thing that could ever happen to you. So what Paul would say is, of course you should just be yourself As long as the self you're talking about is the new self who you are becoming in Christ. If you're talking about your old self, definitely don't be yourself, right? But if you're talking about the new self, then be that person. That's it. That's who you want to be. Just be that person and live it out for all that it is. So what does it look like? What does this new self look like? Well, to put it simply, the new self looks like Jesus. Notice the characteristics that are mentioned of this new self. Compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, forgiving. That's just a straight up description of Jesus. Here's what I want you to see. The gospel, that message of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you, it gives us a model for us as to how we are to live the new life that God has given us through Jesus. So let's go through these. Just as Jesus was compassionate to us, we are to be compassionate towards others. In other words, caring deeply for about other people's struggles and needs. Secondly, Jesus says he was kind. This is another model for our behavior. One Greek scholar that I read, he said this word translated kind. The ancients used this word to describe the virtue of a person whose neighbor's good is as important to him as his own good is. Secondly, we we see the next ones, meekness and humility. Now here's what's interesting about meekness and humility. Interestingly, the Greeks, the ancients, they did not consider meekness and humility to be virtues which which, which a person should seek to possess. They considered them to be vices. Yet both of these words are used to describe what Jesus is like, meekness and humility. In fact, in one of Jesus' only autobiographical statements that describes who he is, he said, I am meek and humble of heart. Like, there you go, they're right there, both of them in the same sentence. So it's important that we clarify what these mean. Humility doesn't mean thinking less of yourself, right? It doesn't mean thinking, oh, I'm just a worthless person, a piece of trash, and nobody should love me. No, humility means just the opposite. It means thinking of yourself less. See, when you're all down on yourself, self-deprecating, oh, I'm just the worst, I don't deserve anybody to love me, guess who you're still preoccupied with? You're still preoccupied with yourself. See, that's not humility, uh, but humility is when you're just not actually thinking about yourself. Uh, in Philippians chapter two, we are told that Jesus is the supreme model of humility because he put his put our needs above his own comfort. He thought of us above himself, and that's what it means to be humble. It means not thinking less of yourself. It means thinking of yourself less, and even prioritizing others above yourself. Meekness is a very interesting word. You know, meekness is not. Uh, to be misunderstood with weakness or timidity. Meekness is power which is under control, under restraint. I think the best picture of this is like a horse, you know, like a, a race horse even, or just a horse in general, I mean pure muscle. And yet they harness, they're able to harness that strength and submit it to the directions of a master. Uh, This is precisely what we see with Jesus, all the power in the universe, the power that created the universe and holds it all together, and yet it was completely submitted to the will of the Father while he was here on earth. It was harnessed to be used only according to the plans and directions of the Father and for his purposes. You know, there was a time in the Gospels where Jesus and his disciples, maybe you know the story, they, they entered into a particular village, and the people in that village treated them very rudely. They rejected them. They didn't show them even common courtesy. They just treated them terribly. It was a major insult, and two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, they said to Jesus, Lord, why don't we call down fire from heaven and burn them up, right? They're like, yeah, those people deserve it. That'd teach them. We'll just burn them up. And Jesus says, no. No, we're not going to do that, right? Like Jesus, right, the one who controls all things, he could have done that, but yet his power was under control and it was submitted to the will of the Father for the purposes of the Father. That's a model for us as how we are to submit our lives, our strength, our ability, our words, everything that we have to God for his purposes. That's what Jesus did and that's what it means to be meek. Next, he talks about patience. You know, patience, in some of your translations, he uses this older term for patience, which is long-suffering, which is such a much more descriptive way to describe what patience is. Those of you who have waited in the DMV, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That's some long-suffering, right? And you know what I'm saying, right? It takes some patience. Uh, and now, here's the thing about God, right? God's patience. This is part of the gospel, the, the patience, the long-suffering of God is part of the gospel. It has been said, and I love this phrase because it makes me think so much and makes my mind go so many places, but think about this phrase. It's been said, the tears of God are the meaning of history. The tears of God are the meaning of history. What that means is that the only reason there is a history at all is because God chose to shed tears. God chose to suffer pain and suffer grief. You know, we read in the book of Genesis, we read this account of how God created the world, and after he had done so, humankind rebelled against him. Sin entered the world, and along with sin came death and corruption, and it says there in Genesis chapter 6 that at one point God looked upon the world that he had created, which was now broken, which was not what he had intended for it to be, and it says that it grieved him to his heart. It grieved him to his heart, but what did God do? See, he sees all this evil on the earth. He sees it even in our day, evil on the earth. We see injustice and what does it do to the heart of God when he sees evil and injustice and wrongdoing and pain? It grieves him to his heart. He says, this isn't the way it was meant to be. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. But what did he do? He could have just shut it down right there. He could have just pulled the plug and said enough is enough. This is causing me grief. This is causing me pain. This is causing me suffering to watch these people I created and I love suffering in these ways and all these things happening that aren't right. Why not just put an end to it all right then and there? Why not just pull the plug? Why not just shut it all down? And you wouldn't have any more evil to deal with ever again. No more unrighteousness ever again. All the pain and evil in the world would be done with. And then God wouldn't have to suffer grief and pain anymore. Why not just do that? Why didn't God just shut it all down right then and there? Why hasn't he done it yet? Here's why. It's because he loves you. That's why, because he loves you. And he loves a whole lot of other people out there as well. And he has a plan to save them and give them life and redeem them and redeem this world. And in order that he might do that, he had to be patient. He chose to weep He chose to patiently wait and suffer long, even though it meant grief and suffering and pain for him. See, this is the love of God, that he was long-suffering, that he is long-suffering for your sake, for my sake, for the sake of so many others in the world. And this is the message of the gospel, that God has been long-suffering because of his love. And God continues to be so patient with us as we grow and as we make mistakes and as we don't always pick up what he's putting down. Right? The gospel gives us a model for how we are to live this new life that we've been given in Christ. The, the new life is to be a life of gospel reenactment, of acting out towards others in the ways that God has acted towards us. Forgiving others as God has forgiven us. Being patient with others as God has been patient with us. And compassionate as God has been compassionate with us. Putting the needs of others above our own, just as God did for us in Christ. And so I want you to ask yourself this question or write it down for you note-takers. Ask yourself, what has God done for me? What is God's work in my life? And what would it look like for me to reenact that in my dealings with other people? To reenact the gospel, to reenact the kindness of God towards me, towards other people. But here's the thing I want you to see. Now I said already, the gospel is a model for how we are to live this new life, but it is so much more than that. It's more than just a model that says, okay, do this. It's even the motivation. So the gospel is not just our model for living this new life. It is also our motivation for living this new life. Notice what Paul says at the beginning of this section in verse 12. He says, put on then, why? He says, as God's chosen ones. As God's chosen ones, holy holy. And beloved, Okay, this is what Jesus has done for you. He says, look at it. Look at what Jesus has done for you. Look at who God has made you as a result. This is your motivation. Take that, let it, you know, churn in your heart and motivate you and move you forward. This phrase, he says, you are God's chosen ones. I think that's a wonderful thing. Some people get a little freaked out by that idea. But let me think about this with you. To be chosen by God. If you are a Christian, the Bible says that God chose you. He chose you. He picked you. He said, I want you from before the foundation of the world that you would be his. And maybe you say, now, wait a second. I thought that I chose God. That's how I became a Christian. Isn't that that I chose God? Well, yes, of course, to be a Christian means that you made a conscious decision to choose God. Okay, so which is it? I mean, did I choose God or did God choose me? Well, of course, the answer is both. To be a Christian is kind of like this. It is to choose God and then to turn around and have God tell you, I chose you before the foundations of the world. It feels good to be chosen. I mean, some of you know what it's like to be chosen for a team or to be chosen for a promotion. The great power, by the way, of friendship or or romantic love is that you have this person and you know that even though they didn't have to, they chose you. And what an incredible confidence that gives a person, what an incredible sense of worth it gives a person to know that they have been chosen. And maybe there are some of you, and and that's not your story, maybe some of you, your story is you know what it's like not to be chosen. You know what it's like to want to be chosen and desire to be chosen. But here's something we have that is incomparable, that all of us have who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, guess what? It means that God chose you. And what incredible grace that is, that God would look down from heaven and see you in spite of your faults, in spite of your shortcomings, and your complete inability to do anything for him, he would choose to place his love upon you and choose to redeem you and choose to give his life for you. What grace that is. Now, maybe there's someone here today who would say, well, I don't know, did God choose me? Because I'm not a Christian, does that mean he didn't? Or I don't know, I mean, how can I know if God chose me? Well, there's one surefire way to find out. It's super easy. Here's what you got to do. Embrace the gospel. Believe the gospel today. Become a Christian today and follow Jesus. Give your life to God. Put your trust in Jesus and follow him. And if you do that, you will find that God chose you from before time began to be his own. And you say, well, what if I don't want to do that? Well, that's your choice. But here's the thing. For the person who's a believer, to be chosen by God is both a comfort and a calling. I want you to think about this. To be chosen by God, it is a comfort and it is a calling. It is both a grace to revel in and it is a destiny to fulfill. In other words, if this is who you are, then this is also your calling. It is also your destiny to fulfill. And this grace that we have been shown, which is at the same time a calling we've been given, is our motivation for living this new life of gospel reenactment, reenacting in our attitudes and our actions towards others what Christ has done for us. In verse 14, Paul continues this word picture he's been painting of taking off one set of clothes and putting on another set of clothes. And he says, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. All of the virtues listed in, in verse 12 and verse 13, they are manifestations of love love. But love itself is still more than the things which are listed here. Furthermore, if you try to just do these actions without actual love in your heart for the person you're doing them for, they can easily become distorted. They can easily become more about you and not about the person you're doing them for. So we need to bind all of these things together with true, genuine love. In verse 15, Paul tells us that to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and to be thankful To really embrace the gospel and to let it permeate your life, it results in being people who are full of peace even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And it will lead us to be people whose lives are characterized by thankfulness. In fact, it would seem from this that what he's saying is that peace and thankfulness are things which we are encouraged to cultivate in our lives, in our minds, and in our hearts. And what that means is, for you and me, that we need to be preaching the gospel to our own hearts. We need to be reminding ourselves of the gospel. I think the best example of this in the Bible is David in the Psalms. He says to himself, he speaks to himself. He says at one point, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? And he's, who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. And here's what he says. He says, hope in God. I shall again praise him. He is my salvation and my God. What's he doing? He's reminding himself of who God is and what God has done. He's speaking to his own heart, speaking to his heart that he should be having peace in the midst of turmoil. In another section, he speaks into his life think, what reasons why he should have thanksgiving. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. And he goes on to list them. He says, who forgives all your iniquities and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Paul is speaking to himself and he's reminding himself lest he forget of all the reasons he has to be thankful and to have peace even in the midst of difficult times. All of the things that God has done for him, he reminds himself. And we need to do the same thing in our own lives, to preach the gospel to our own hearts, to cultivate this Thankfulness, so that the peace of Christ rules in our hearts, and so that our lives are characterized by thankfulness. So that's what it looks like to walk in this new life. Going on in verse sixteen, he says, "Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teach and admonish one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God." This new self, which is one, this new self is one which delights in the word of God, and the new self delights in worshiping God together with other believers. This idea of letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly, this is one of the reasons why we study the Bible the way we do here at Whitefields. It's one of the reasons why we encourage you to be reading your Bible at home. We don't just bring up topics and talk about topics, but we go through the word of God. Here's why, because we want it to just dwell within you, and we want it to dwell within you richly. You know, we want the word of God to be in your mind because if it's in your mind, it can affect your heart and it can direct your life. And maybe the topic of any given sermon or if you're reading at home and, you know, not every, you you read some passage and you're, you're like, I'm not sure how that directly applies to my life. I don't care. Let it dwell within you richly. Keep taking it in. Keep reading it. Keep hearing it. Take the word of God into your life in an active way. Study it, file it away, put it on the shelf in your mind because at some point you're going to face some situation in life where that does apply and you're going to be ready because the word of God is dwelling in you richly. So be actively, regularly taking in the word of God into your life, letting it dwell richly within you so that it shapes your affections and so that it results in spontaneous expression. In your life and in your actions. In verse 17, we see that this new self that we've been talking about is one which does everything, whether word or deed, it does it for Jesus' sake and in Jesus' name. And that is a great barometer for you, by the way, uh, of what you should do and what you shouldn't do, right? Like, if you can honestly do something and say, I can do this in Jesus' name, then that's a green light. Like, that's a go ahead. If not, you really need to reconsider. Like, Cheat on my taxes in Jesus' name? Nope, right. But uh, pray for my wife in Jesus' name, all day long, right? So it's that kind of that kind of thing. Whatever the particular action is, now those are easy ones. But whatever the particular action is, you ask yourself, can I do this in Jesus' name? That's an awesome barometer for directing your actions. Now we change gears a little bit. Until now, Paul has been talking about gospel reenactment in general. Here in the next few verses, starting in verse 18, he begins talking about two specific areas of our lives and what gospel reenactment looks like in those areas. One of them is in our home relationships, in the family, and the other one is in our workplaces. So let's begin by looking at gospel reenactment in the home. verse 18, this section begins with a statement which is controversial in our modern day. Uh, And that is this, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. What I'd like to show you real quickly, and I realize this is a big topic and I'm only able to talk about it uh, briefly today. But what I'd like to show you is how this fits into the bigger idea of what Paul's talking about here in this section, which is gospel reenactment. Because I don't believe that this is something which should be written off as archaic or or misogynistic at all. I, I believe that it's rooted in a theological understanding. And that theological understanding is this that the husband and wife are equals they're equals before God they're equal in value but they have complementary roles in this uh, relationship and in this family so the Greek word here which is translated submit is a word borrowed from the military actually it means to be under in rank in the military um, and in several other areas in life you can imagine a, a private may be smarter than a general, it may be more talented, maybe even just a better person than the general. Uh, but the private isn't submitted to the general so much as a person as he is to the rank. And as human beings, they have the same value, but on that team, they play different roles, complementary roles. And this is the model which uh, we have for how a family is to function. Furthermore, the the form of this verb that's used here is that it is. A middle voice in Greek, which means that it is voluntary, it means that it is not a command, it's a voluntary thing. So the wife's submission is never to be forced or coerced, it is a deference which the wife gives as a gift. I like to describe it like this. It's kind of like a tiebreak, right? Husbands and wives are a team. They make decisions together. They should make decisions together. You should talk about things and discuss things and weigh issues and go back and forth. But inevitably, there are going to be times where there's a difference of opinion and you stall out in your negotiations and there's a stalemate. And what this is saying is that when that happens, somebody has to be the, the tiebreaker. And the gift that the wife gives to her husband is allowing him to lead and be the head of the home. Now this should never be abused. Of course it is sometimes and that is wrong and we never advocate for that. It should never be abused. It is never to be an excuse for a husband to do things which are unethical or cruel or unloving. This is an organizational structure you could say. And it isn't all on the wife either. I want you to understand that here and especially in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, really the huge onus of, of responsibility is placed upon the husband that he should love his wife and that he should be gentle towards her and he should put her needs above his own. It should be a very humbling thing for a husband to realize that his wife is honoring him by allowing him to lead their family and he should never abuse that. Husbands, consider what it would be like if you had to follow yourself, right? Like if you, if you had to be in that position of having to work with someone like you, Would that be a good experience or a bad experience? Seek to be the kind of leader whom you would be happy and confident to follow. So the husband should be loving the wife. He should have her best interest above his own. Her best interest should be the driving motivation. That love of Christ which prioritizes the other above yourself. That's the kind of leadership we're talking about. Now, how does this fit into this idea of gospel reenactment? Well, hugely actually and that's really the point of this whole section the gospel is what is the story of what God has done to save us and to redeem us the gospel is the story of Jesus and at the heart of that story is the story of what of one God creator of heaven and earth of all things seen and unseen and yet this one God who is eternally present in three co-equal persons Father, Son and Holy Spirit even though the Son and the Father are equally God they took different ranks For a mission, the Son submitted himself to the Father. The Father is not more than the Son, and those titles don't speak of order, they don't speak of origin, but they speak of rank. The Son is not called the Son because he was created by the Father or came after the Father. It is because of the rank to which he freely submitted himself in relation to the Father. And so the father sent the son, and the son was obedient to the father, even unto death, so much so that Jesus could say in his life, everything the father has sent me to do, I have done. They were one, and yet they had different roles and different ranks for the purpose of a mission, and that is the picture that we are given of what a marriage is. Two people who are one, co-equal, and yet they embrace different roles and ranks for the purpose of a mission. It isn't that women should submit to men in general. That is not what we're talking about. It isn't that women should not be leaders in business or leaders in government. Not at all. What we're talking about is reenacting the gospel in our marriage relationships. And this is one of the ways. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul goes into greater detail about what this looks like and that the husband, what it means for the husband to love his wife sacrificially. But Paul goes on, he says, Children should likewise obey their parents because, again, this pleases the Lord. They're respecting God's order of authority. This idea is so important to God because it's inherent to who God is, the nature of God. It's inherent to the story of the gospel, the relationship of submission and authority and the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And so this is an aspect of reenacting the gospel in our home life as well. In verse 21, Paul says that the father should not provoke their children lest they become discouraged. What that means is that parents can actually provoke bad behavior in their children by being overly harsh or having unreasonable demands or unreasonable expectations. And the danger is that if you do that, your children will become discouraged. They will not feel loved. They will not feel supported. So in our parenting, here's the other point. In our parenting, we are also encouraged to reenact the gospel, to be as gracious and gentle and forgiving and long-suffering with our children as God has been towards us. So that brings us to our third and final part, which starts in verse 22, which is gospel reenactment in the workplace. And Paul here in this final section speaks directly to slaves and masters. This word for slaves can also be translated bond servant, which is what we might call contractual slavery, which is what we, we would refer to in English as indentured servitude, servitude, which means that a person signs a contract for a particular period of time to be of another person's servant to pay off a debt or because they get paid by that person i don't want to get too much into this topic i wrote a i wrote an article about it for the church about slavery um, and in the bible a few months back if any of you are interested go ahead and text that number up on the screen and i'll make sure that you get that personally but without going into too much detail about it i think that we can fairly say that what paul says here to slaves applies to most of us in our modern day workplace relationships when Paul wrote this letter, over 50% of the population of the city of Rome were slaves. A slave Slavery in the Roman Empire is very different than slavery here in the United States. For example, slavery in the Roman Empire had nothing to do with race or ethnicity, and many skilled workers in that society were slaves. For example, most doctors, most lawyers, most teachers were employed as slaves. Slaves in the sense that they had contracts to work for wealthy people, and they were on you know, part of their staff of servants, uh, even though they had these specialized skills. So a Christian worker is called here to reenact the gospel in their workplace. How? By doing their work with their whole heart as unto the Lord, just as Jesus was able to say that he did everything which the Father sent him to do. For the Christian person, your work is a way in which you get to serve God in the world, in which you get to accomplish God's work in the world. And here's what that means, that God cares very much about your work, whatever your work may be. He cares very much about how you do your work, and he wants you to do it well. You know, the Bible is very unique in its, what you might call, a theology of work, especially in compared to other uh, religions and worldviews out there. For example, the Greeks had a very negative view of work. They viewed work uh In two ways. First of all, they they thought that work is for suckers, basically. Something that should be avoided. The goal of life is to not have to work. In fact, the reason that the gods created human beings is so that the human beings could work and the gods could just uh, chill and relax and play basketball outside of the school. And I was going to quote that whole thing, but I forgot. Uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air thing, right? But uh, anyway, they just wanted to chill out, and so they created the the human beings to do all the work for them so that they could uh, not have to work. And that's really the Their view of work. Furthermore, they viewed manual labor, you know, trade work and and physical labor as being more degrading to the person than intellectual labor. So that was the other thing. If you had to work, you should definitely try to do intellectual work because manual labor was thought to be degrading. Now, Eastern philosophy, on the other hand, taught that the material world, everything that we think we see, it's really just an illusion, right? It's all part of the matrix. Like, it, you think you see it, but it doesn't actually exist. And the goal of life is to overcome this material world that you think you see. And uh, the only reason to work is so that you can eat food while you're trying to convince yourself that you don't actually need to eat food. It's kind of ironic there. But uh, the point is this. The Bible is... Teaches something completely different about work the bible teaches first of all that work is not a curse secondly it teaches that all work has dignity both manual labor and intellectual labor all work has dignity it teaches that work is not for suckers but this material world does matter it matters so much that god took on material flesh Material flesh and blood, he came to this real world which very much matters and he died a real physical death. And the very first image we get of God in the Bible is that he is a God who is working, he is creating. One person put it this way, he is a God who has dirt under his fingernails. That's the first view we get of God. Creating man out of the dust of the ground and saying that what he created, this physical world, is good. We see him cultivating, we see him then commissioning man to do work. And think about it, work existed before or after the fall into sin, before. What that means is that work is not a curse. Work is something which God created us to do. It is something which God himself does, and there is dignity in work. Furthermore, the story of the gospel is the story of how God is working to redeem This creation, and one day, all things will be made new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, but until then, we get to be part of showing people what redemption looks like, and we get to show people what God is like because we can also take things, take things that are chaotic and make order out of them. It's a reflection of who God is. And so this is a biblical theology of work. And Christians should understand that work, first of all, is something that God cares about. And ultimately, all of our work that we do, we do unto the Lord. What that means is that God cares about your work. He does. It's important to Him. And you should do your work unto the Lord as a way of serving the Lord, whatever your job may be, seeking to please Him through it. And if you do that, let me tell you this, your boss will probably also most likely be pleased with you as well. Because you won't be just watching the clock or trying to scrape by and do the minimum. You'll be doing your best because you're doing it unto the Lord. And as a result, Christian workers should be the best workers in any given company. Christian bosses, we're told next in in verse 1 of chapter 4, and that's as far as we're going to go. But it says this, they should be fair and they should know that they will answer to God for how they treat their employees. Just as the son submitted to the father, but the father loved the son and didn't demand the son to do things which were harsh or unnecessary, only what was needed, not abusing that authority because the father loved the son. This is our model and motivation for our workplace relationships, whichever side of it you might find yourself on. The model and the motivation for living the new life we have received in Christ is this. It's the gospel. It's what Jesus did. It's who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and who we have now become in him. And the more we behold that, the more we celebrate that gospel, the more we let his word dwell richly within us, the more it shapes our hearts and our minds. And by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, we will be transformed all the more into his image. As we put off the old self, as you put on the new self and we become the people who God is making us to become for his glory and for our good. Amen? You please stand with me and we'll pray. Lord, we are so thankful for what you have done for us in Jesus. And Lord, we we are thankful, Lord, that you would choose even people like us. Lord, thank you for that. We, th- we realize it's not what we have done for you or who we are, but it's who you are and what you have done for us. And we, are, we want to rejoice in that and celebrate that, Lord, lest we become... Uh, conceited in in ourselves, Lord. But thank you that the gospel doesn't allow that. The gospel makes us so humble and yet at the same time so confident in you. And I pray that 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 humility and that confidence would truly be what characterizes our lives as we walk with you. Lord, I pray for anybody here today who who would say, you know what, all this stuff you're talking about, uh, I'm not sure it actually even applies to me because I'm not even sure that I am a Christian. I've never said yes. I've never put down my yes and said, yes, Jesus, I'm yours. I will follow you. I receive forgiveness and I receive the gospel. Lord, if there's anyone here who would say that today, anyone hearing this, Lord, I pray that even now, that they would come to the place of saying, I need a savior, I need grace, and I wanna be, I wanna walk with God. And so Lord, I pray that they would do that. Even as we sing this last song, that they would do business with you and that they would pray and they would ask you to come into their lives and they would give you their own life and that they would begin to walk with you today. Lord, all of these things we pray as we go from this place. Help us to walk in this new life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series Crux, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.